It was a beautiful June afternoon. We were exploring the city of Lviv, Ukraine, and seeing everything that it had to offer, observing the culture, soaking up the sun. People were off doing their usual activities. Older gentlemen playing, tests, playing chess on the city benches, ladies shopping in the various stores, couples eating together on the patio of Veronica's, the usual traffic hustling and bustling about. We headed back to our apartment. We took our usual route. Only this time, one of the streets was blocked off. We turned the corner and there was a crowd of people gathered surrounding a charter bus outside a fancy hotel. We had no idea what was going on. It looked exciting. And so, naturally, we joined the crowd, waiting for we weren't sure what, but it was something. It would be something exciting. It was 2012. Ukraine and Poland were hosting the Euro Cup soccer tournament that's held every four years. I was trying to think of an American equivalent to the Euro Cup, and I don't know that there is one. It's a big deal over there, almost like the Olympics are. But they take their soccer seriously. To find out, we are waiting for Team Portugal. And for those who follow soccer, I don't know if that's anyone here at all or not, but one of the best soccer players in the world was in that hotel, and we were waiting to see, catch a glimpse of him. We waited and we waited, but eventually we decided we were hungry. And being American college students, we decided food was more important than this European soccer star. So we went back to our apartment for food. But people crowding around something has a way of sucking you in. It has a way of piquing your attention. You don't want to miss out, and so you join the crowd. You say, what's going on over there? Who is that? Am I missing something? I don't want to miss out. And so you join the crowd. Hopefully, as you join the crowd and you see what's going on, you know what it is that you're looking at, and you can decide whether or not it's worth your time. Crowds were flocking to Jesus as he walked on this earth. They wanted to see what he would do. They wanted to see who he would touch or be touched by him, to hear him teach, to hear what he had to say. They wanted to follow him as well. They were curious to find out who is this guy that so many people are coming from miles and miles to see and to hear. The disciples are about to get a clue as Matthew records the events that happened on the Sea of Galilee. I invite you to stand out of respect for God's word as I again read Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. And hear what happened to Jesus and these men. Beginning at verse 23, reading in Jesus' name. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm at the sea, so that the boat was being covered with waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him up, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Father God, we do thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us in your truth here this morning. We pray, Lord, you'd open up our hearts and our ears, our minds as well, to hear the message you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In typical Jesus fashion here, he's drawing a crowd. It doesn't seem like Jesus can go from point A to point B without being stopped by numerous people, people who are looking for something. Reading the previous chapters in Matthew, we see that he's just stopped giving or finishing his sermon on the mount. And the crowds of people were continuing to follow him around. 
When he left the mountain, crowds followed him. And here in chapter 8, in the beginning, it's one account after another of people asking Jesus for favors. Heal my leprosy. Heal my servant. Heal my favor. Cast out these demons. All of which Jesus did. The crowds surrounded him, continued to follow him. But Jesus is looking for a bit of a break. He gets into a boat looking for some peace and quiet, and his disciples follow him into the boat, and they ship off into sea. Little does Jesus know the events that are about to take place that day. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each record this event. Not a lot of details are given, just some of the facts are given. Matthew simply writes here that the disciples followed Jesus into the boat, and they went out into the water. And then in verse 24, things abruptly change. Things start to get exciting. Matthew writes, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. If you're like me, you don't know much about the Sea of Galilee. So I looked up some information on it, and hopefully this will be helpful for you. It's 700 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by mountains on every side. If you've ever been up in the mountains, you know that storms can come up out of nowhere. It's a common occurrence. It just happens. This happened frequently on the Sea of Galilee. And if you know much about Jesus' disciples, you know that some of them were fishermen. They spent their lives, they earned a living here on this sea. They were accustomed to these storms. They were used to them. They knew how to navigate them. But here, this storm seemed to be different. The boat was being covered by waves. Can you imagine this feeling? You're on this giant lake that's 12 miles long and 8 miles wide, about 200 feet deep in the deepest parts, surrounded by water. And here comes this storm out of nowhere, and your boat starts taking on water. I imagine it would be a terrible feeling. I don't think they had life jackets back then either. But anytime you've got water coming into a boat, it's got to make you at least a little nervous. The disciples try their best to navigate the storm, but it soon becomes obvious to them. As Luke records, they began to be swamped and they were in danger. They knew it. They knew that they were going to die. So there's one group of people, disciples, frantically trying to stay above the water. And here's Jesus. What's he doing during this time? Mark writes that he's sleeping on a cushion in the back of the boat. He's fast asleep. Surely he must have felt the boat rocking back and forth. Maybe his feet were even getting wet with the water that was coming on. Yet it doesn't seem to bother him one bit. The disciples must have wondered, who is this guy? And while the boat is sinking, here he is, fast asleep. Desperate, the disciples don't know what else to do. So they wake Jesus up. And they break the news to him. Say, don't you care, teacher? We're dying. Save us, Lord. We are perishing. And what does Jesus do? He does what any man would do, right? Oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. Or maybe he says, well, men, it was nice knowing you. I'm glad I'm on this with you. It's not what Jesus does. Instead, he does something that seems almost a little uncharacteristic of Jesus. He says, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Here are these people who are frantically coming to him saying, Lord, our lives are in your hands, save us. And Jesus says, you have little faith. Why are you afraid? 
What did the disciples do wrong? They came to Jesus when they needed help. They put their lives in the hands of the Lord and they asked him to save them. Why does Jesus scold his disciples here? Why does he ask why they're afraid? Doesn't he see the boat and the situation that they're in? Doesn't he see the water coming in? Doesn't he feel the storm? Doesn't Jesus know a bad situation when he sees one? Doesn't he fear anything? This is out of control. And there's nothing more that these disciples can do. They're going to die. It was out of the disciples' control. Yes, Jesus knew that. The disciples knew that. But it wasn't out of the Father's control. And Jesus knew that his life was in the Father's hands. And as his life is in the Father's hands, why does he need to fear? Why fear? As our lives are in the Father's hands, why do we need to fear? He knew the Father's plan for him. And he knew what he had come to do. But he also knew the Father was in control. One commentator writes this, that the peaceful sleep of Jesus is due to the total absence of fear in his heart and to his absolute trust in the Father's care. Jesus knows who his Father is and he knows that he is in his Father's hands, even here on this lake as this boat is taking on water and nothing is out of the Father's control. He trusted his Father and his life was in his hands. And then Jesus does something else. He speaks. He speaks two words to the wind and the sea. And because of English translation, there's three words, but you're going to have to just deal with it. He says, hush, be still. Hush, be still. And instantly, it becomes perfectly calm. The wind stops. The waves stop roaring. They stop waving. The ripples in the sea stop. But the ripples continued on in the hearts of these men in the boats as they see what they're seeing and hear what they heard. We hear their words in verse 27 asking, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Who is this guy who can silence a storm with just a word? The disciples are amazed at the authority of this man, Jesus. And they ask themselves, Who is he? just by saying, hush, be still, and even the wind and the waves obey him. Here was Joseph's son, the carpenter. They knew the man. They had been following him around. They had been listening to his teaching, asking him questions and learning from him. They had heard his miracles. They had seen his miracles. They heard about his healing touch, his casting out demons, and now they see something that they never thought they would see. A man who can tame the wind a man who can control the sea, a man who can bring peace into chaos, not by offering some sacrifice, not by doing some kind of rain dance or wind dance, not even by a prayer, but simply by speaking. And there isn't anything inherently special about the words that he spoke. There wasn't any trick as to how he says these words. If there was a trick, every teacher ought to know this trick to be able to say, hush, be still, and watch all their students be silent and listen to them. But there was no magic behind it. It's simply the words of Jesus. Jesus speaks, and instantly the wind and the sea obey. The forces of nature obey the words of their creator. 
And in speaking, Jesus reveals himself to be more than just a man. He reveals himself as God. Did the disciples see it that day on the boat? Do you see it? The whole story has been written for you to see and to believe that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God. Go back to the beginning of Matthew. Matthew reveals the identity and the authority of Jesus even from the beginning of his gospel. Matthew makes it clear that Jesus is not simply a man, that he was never just a man, but he has always been since his conception the God-man. He starts with identifying Jesus as the promised Savior and King from the line of David in Matthew 1, the one who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, the one who will save his people from their sins, And even before he was born, Matthew is identifying here his authority, his identity. And in chapter 2, we read the account of the Magi who came to worship. Who was it that they came to worship? Asking, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Then we read about his flight into Egypt to fulfill the prophecy from Isaiah. Out of Egypt I have called my son. And then in Matthew chapter 3, we read about Jesus' baptism. And Matthew shares the words that were uttered from the heavens that day. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus goes off into the wilderness to be tempted. And he resists every temptation that the devil throws at him. In Matthew 4, he begins to proclaim the gospel and healing every kind of disease and sickness. What man can do these things. After Jesus gives his sermon on the mount, the crowds recognize that he was different than their scribes. They recognize, they notice that Jesus is one who teaches with authority. And in chapter 8, we read again his authority over sickness and demons. And now we see his authority over nature. It's revealed with something as simple and as ordinary as words. And Matthew begins chapter 9, offering the forgiveness of sins, again with something as simple and ordinary as words. Not because of any special combination of words or any special way of speaking, but simply because of the one who is speaking. Because Jesus is the God-man and because he speaks, his word is true. And it does what he says it does. And this, I think, is the point of this whole calming of the sea story. Jesus reveals to his disciples that he speaks as one with authority, not because he's just a mere man, but because he is both man and God. And because he is God, his word does what he says it does. When he tells the wind, hush, be still, the wind hushes and it is stilled. When he tells the waves, hush, be still, they stop and the ripples don't even continue on anymore. If he tells someone that they are clean, they are clean. If he tells someone that they are healed, they are healed. If he tells someone to get up and walk, they get up and walk. If he tells the demons to go, they go. If he tells someone, your sins are forgiven, they are forgiven. When he tells the dead to live, the dead live. It makes us a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? We think there's got to be more to it than just mere words. There's got to be more to it than just Jesus speaking. Surely we must do something. 
respond or answer. But does Jesus' word ever lose its authority? Or does his word still have the same authority today as it did when he first uttered those words? May I submit to you that his word still has the exact same authority. And his word still accomplishes what Christ says it does. And because it does, it's an incredible comfort for us. The authority of God's word still matters to this day. One commentator explains it this way. says that every threat that Jesus has made to punish wickedness and unbelief will most certainly be carried out. Every threat that Jesus utters to threaten or to punish wickedness and unbelief will certainly be carried out. So for those who are suffering under wickedness or those of, who are going through persecution, whatever it might be, Jesus says, it's going to be dealt with. So don't worry about it. We leave it in his hands. The commentator continues on. It says, And every promise that he has made to forgive and to bless and to save penitent sinners cannot fail to be fulfilled. Every promise that Jesus utters cannot fail to be fulfilled. Because it is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uttering these promises. And as he speaks, it is fulfilled. So what does that mean for us? It means that our salvation is sure. It's sure because we have Jesus' word for it. And it depends entirely upon Christ and on his suffering and his death as our substitute, not upon any merit or worthiness in us. And what a comfort that is for us, that as God has declared it, it will be so, regardless of your experiences, regardless of your feelings. That as Christ says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We are forgiven. As God's word says that as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sins from you. Your sins have been removed from you. And that's a comfort to us. We live in a world where perception is reality. We live in a world where we're told we have to have all of our ducks in a row and we try our best to make sure they're all in a row. We live in a world where sight and experience are the only way for us to determine truth. And my experience can be different from your experience, and so all of a sudden we have multiple layers of truth. Yet even in this culture, in this society we live in, the authority of Christ still remains. But Christ has given to us his sure promises in his word. And he's given to us more than just the promises in his word. He's tied them also to physical elements and today we get to partake of one of those promises. When, Christ's word, when Christ says in his word that this is my body which is given for you, it is his body which has been given for you. When he says this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, this is his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, for the forgiveness of your sins. We touch this promise in our hands as we hold the bread, and the body of Christ. We taste this promise in our mouth as we receive the wine and the blood of Christ. And we experience and we receive and we are forgiven because of the words of Christ. And Christ's words do what he says it does. As the authority of Christ pierced through the wind and the waves in his words that day, 
It also landed on the hearts and the minds of those disciples that day. And as they got off that boat, eventually when they kissed the land, happy to be alive, they knew that Jesus was not just a mere man, but Jesus is one with authority, not just in his teaching, but in his life, that Jesus, in fact, was the Son of Man, the Son of God. They asked themselves, what kind of man is this? He is the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God, made flesh. And as his word comes to us today, he calls out to us to trust in him, to receive the promises and the salvation that his word declares and offers to you today. So trust in him and fear not whatever this world has to offer, because our salvation is secure in the words of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for your promises. We thank you that you have given to us Christ and that the promises you give to us in your word are sure. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy, for your forgiveness that you bring to us so freely. I pray that you would help us to trust in you whenever the storms of life come, Lord, whenever trials and tribulation come. Help us to continue to put our trust in you and what you have said. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.